Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Citation Mets fans. Welcome to this week's edition of For All You Kids Out There, a Mets adjacent to Baseball Perspectives podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. With me once again this week is Jarrett Seidler. Jarrett, I'm a little worried about you. What's up? I'm reliably informed you're watching college baseball now. I always watch college baseball a little bit. I have to keep up. I have to, like, know who the good players are. It's Keaton's job. I can't, like, I don't know, man. Like, I know it started this weekend, and... Got Got to watch Hunter Barco pitch today. Adrian Del Castillo's and the the, the Florida Miami series is like sure. the one that's like worth watching this weekend outside of just like the pitchers. But I just want to point out that on Friday, Cespedes Barbecue tweeted out this: "Damn, Miami was down three, top nine, and tied it up with walk, walk, ground out, walk, hit by pitch, pop out, walk, walk. Fuck yeah, yeah. college baseball. Yeah, I mean, like you know, college baseball is what it is. I'm not a huge college baseball." aficionado you know certainly keenan's territory for the most part but you know there's nothing out it's february there's nothing else on like it's either college baseball or some random mlb network shows you know Derek lewis starching curtis blades last night yeah it's all a gif of that i think you sent it to me yeah uh but yeah i you know it's like it's useful for me to have an idea of what Adrian Del Castillo looks like and Judd Fabian looks like. And... Yeah, there's only, like, so much. Like, obviously, I go to University of Hartford games. I probably won't be this year. And if I was fully vaccinated and yeah. felt better about it, I'd probably go see UConn since they have a couple notable draft prospects. So does BC. But only so much... So many, how much time in the day for prospect stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing else on TV. I was playing uh, NCAA 14 on my second <laughs> TV while watching this. I switched the PlayStation 3 to the second TV because all I really use it for is NCAA, and NCAA is mostly a menu game because the real fun in NCAA 14 is the recruiting. <laughs> Not the actual gameplay. Play the game a little bit, but also the graphics are nine years old. So you know, having it on the thirty-two inch ain't so bad because doesn't look so great on the sixty-five inch. Uh... I'm getting those Akron Zips up to up to. I'm, I'm currently the I, I I did win the MAC championship last year. I'm in season four, so. We'll, we'll, we'll get him into the Big Ten sooner or later. This is episode 267 for all you kids out there. As you can tell, it's the first week of spring training, and there is not a ton to talk about for talking about Jarrett's most recent NCAA 14 season. 
there's there's more than there was an hour ago because uh, and there's I think there's more like there's like two more Mets free agent signings to talk about and like major league free agent signings. Yeah, and a baseball man said a bunch <laughs> of very stupid stuff. Uh, to be fair, I'm pretty sure 29 other owners certainly believe and might even say out loud close to those things, but might be smart enough to check to see if there's a camera running before doing so. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, listen, we, we both talk to people that work in baseball, usually not the team president level. I might talk to a team president once a year, mm-hmm. but you know, and, and when you're in a comfortable situation or a situation that either is off the record or you think is off the record, a lot of those guys will start discussing pretty widely and uh kevin mather apparently did so for the bellevue breakfast rotary club or whatever and was being recorded and was put up on youtube and he said a whole bunch of you know he said multiple racist things during it and he also said a whole bunch of extremely anti-labor collusive stuff that he shouldn't have said uh, but worse than him saying it, and worse than him getting caught saying it, is that he believes it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, the absolute worst part of all of this is, you know, listen, we both have friends in the Seattle org. Mm-hmm. I think one of them actually listens to this podcast. Sorry. But this is not the first time that this organization has been connected with this exact same shit. It's not the first time this organization's been connected to racism. It's not the first time this organization's been connected to racism in player development. It's not the first time Kevin Mather has been connected to some really bad stuff. He's gotten hit for sexual harassment previously. So, you know, when you keep doing the same shit with the same bad people, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know they've they've sort of shuffled him around after the sexual harassment stuff but still seems to be out there giving quotes representing the team even if it's at the bellevue rotary club it's team president no i know you know there's an internal sexual harassment complaint filed against him about 10 or 12 years ago that has been publicly reported in the seattle times yeah and you know, there's only so many times Major League Baseball can respond to this with a mix of shrug emoji and a new hotline to report stuff and a sternly worded press release and firing the guy. Because I'm sure Kevin Mather is about to get fired. Like, I he mean, is. he's a minority owner. You can't really. Yeah, but I'm sure he's about to, you know suspension or whatever he's you know he's not going to be the president of the seattle mariners in a week because we know how this goes sure um you say that like mickey calloway isn't still the pitching coach for the los angeles angels yeah um but there's no will to ever actually change the underlying factors that contribute to this um and and that's actually the problem when it mm-hmm. comes down to it. Uh, I mean, you say uh, he won't be team president anymore, but Larry Bear is still the CEO of the Giants. Yeah, he, 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 they 
got him through a suspension, and yeah, that one was on video too. Yeah. <sighs> you look at what's uh, the Domingo Herman stuff with the Yankees going on right now. You know, uh, you know he's he's back, and Aaron Boone gave a not so great answer on him, although not as bad as Joe Girardi gave on Odubel Herrera. Sure. And Zach Britton just basically went out there and threw everybody <laughs> under the bus, which he is correct to do, by the yeah. way. That that he, he is a good person for doing that. I I do want to get. I just certainly do want to give him credit for it. I do wonder if that's like every veteran on any of these teams has the capa- has the power has the power and power is not the right word has the ability to do this and affect the conversation around it. Yeah, and almost none of them do. Yeah, you know. I, the only quote I saw about Adubel Herrera out of the Phillies locker room from, like, a veteran star player was by Aaron Nolan. It was nearly as bad as Girardi's. Yeah. You know, Bryce Harper and Zach Wheeler weren't running to the microphone to say that what Adubel Herrera did was not okay and he shouldn't be on our baseball team like Zach Britton did. So, you know... I, there's a limit to how, like, there's there's a limit to how much of this stuff can keep happening before I think people, like, have to recognize that it's actually systemic. Racism in baseball is systemic. Right. The So Dr. Lorena Martin, who was the Mariners' former, he was director of high performance or whatever, you know, basically accused the Mariners, you know, front office up to Jerry DePoto and the director of player development, whose name I don't remember, the guy from the Rockies, uh, of just really like, yeah, essentially functionally racism and player development. If you read that, I think it was originally in The Athletic. It might have been the Seattle Times. I don't remember offhand. But if you like read her accusations, it's, you know, it's nothing we haven't heard before from a lot of different organizations, I feel like. No. It, it's not. And, you know, that front office, when things were going well with Dr. Martin, was not shy about trumpeting that in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that they had a... Latina woman in a high-ranking front office position um, of importance, and that she was important to their player development process. And then, I mean, they really like trumpeting the progressive nature of their player dev too. Yeah, the quinoa tacos or quinoa burrito stories from yeah instructs. Like, we don't even play baseball, and you know, the second that went south all of a sudden you know she wasn't an important part of our player development and she's a crank and a whole lot of media took that at face value and fast forward what two years yeah something like that fast forward a couple of years and the team president goes out and says a lot of it publicly (laughs) you know 
starts making, you know, weird comments that would be right out of 10 or 15 years ago's baseball prospect writing about some of his top prospects or non-white, um, starts complaining about Iwamura's uh, interpreter and, you know, not, you know, pl- players that don't want to speak English and, you know. Like, like he's like out of like, you know, it's like the shit Dana White used to say about Anderson Silva. Mm-hmm. Like these are codes. Right. You know, when, when, when a criticism of a Latino player's plate discipline who actually has good plate discipline starts magically appearing places, I raise my eyebrow at that. Because I know too much. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, there, there's a lot of these code words. There are. I, I wrote a thousand word internal document about them about four months ago. Because it's very easy to get caught up in them. I've gotten caught up in them. You know. I, I in the 2019, 2020 prospect cycle and i won't say exactly which one it was because i don't think repeating it's fair to the player either made a bad visual player comp that was that you know i went back a few months later and was absolutely horrified by well it didn't happen but you know when when an organization gets credibly accused of this stuff and everybody just kind of Eh, ignores it and you know we certainly weren't out there yelling about it either and there's mm-hmm. reasons for that um and probably should have been um and then it comes out later to be true nobody, nobody's actually gonna put that two and two together it's it's gonna be the the takeaways from this the first takeaway i saw spreading online about this was about jared kelman like the fantasy guys talking about the this was going to affect Jared Kelnick's call-up timing, an anecdote he told him there. Like, that that's what... And, and people are starting to care about the other stuff, because they should, because it's wrong. Um, you know, like the 20th takeaway in this, the, like 20 levels deep in here, because this isn't even one of the racist things or, like, really bad things where he buried his own players. This dude basically admitted that they were fucking colluding against free agents. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're talking about how their strategy for the offseason, and then they thought a lot of teams were on the same page was to wait everything out and have free agents come back hat in hand at the end of the offseason because they needed a job. That they were just not going to participate in free agency until like mid-February, which they didn't. And a lot of other teams didn't. And that's collusion. There's a word for that. It's collusion. <laughs> and it is banned by the collective bargaining agreement. It is banned by labor law. It is funny so. that they literally, I'm looking at a breakdown of everything he said, that they've already like planned out when they're calling these guys up yeah. for like service time purposes. Yeah. You, you know what? Saying that you're calling Jared Kelnick on a date in February, saying that you're calling Jared Kelnick on this date up because this is when his service time clock is manipulated and because he did not accept your Evan White-style suggestion. Mm-hmm. Do you know what you just did? You set yourself for one hell of a service time grievance. Because 
You can't actually do that. Hmm. Taylor Trammell will be a late summer call-up. Late summer, you say? Right. Yes. He, he's, he also claimed in here that if they had a COVID outbreak, that he would have activated himself over Kalnick. Yeah. To play left field. Um, because he wasn't going to start Jared Kalnick's service time. You can't actually say this. It is not actually okay to manipulate prospect service time. The problem is there's never been a case adjudicated where the team admitted that they did it. <laughs> Anytime a case with that kind of fact pattern has come up, it has been settled before it reached binding arbitration. I know more than I can say here, but, yeah. you know, like... Stall for 30 seconds while I make sure something's been publicly reported. Uh, okay. I'll just, I guess, add some more of the highlights in here, which is him also saying that they did fine financially last year, even without fans, because their TV deal is good. Almost like the TV deals for these teams are more important than having actual attendance. Okay. So, Ron Blum of the Associated Press, who is, um, I would say one of the long-standing baseball writers and one of the better ones, and is extremely well-sourced with both the league and the Players Association. And if you read his stuff, that's very obvious. Um, he was sent a copy, or he was privy to the details of the Chris Bryant arbitration decision. And Ron Blum reported... And wink, wink, I have no reason to believe that this is incorrect. Wink, mm -hmm. wink. That the Cubs basically conceded in the arguing of that case that they could not have only done that to push back his eligibility for free agency. But Bryant still lost because he couldn't prove that the reasons were pretextual and fake. Right. The Seattle Mariners just admitted <laughs> that whatever they use to send Jared Kelnick down in a month is going to be pretextual and fake. Mm -hmm. You might have lost that thing. And yeah. those, it's not very hard to download a YouTube video. I already got a copy of that video on my hard drive for when it's deleted in 20 minutes. Right, here, here's, the, here, here's the pull quote from Ron Blum's article. Irving's did not decide whether teams have the right to manipulate service time, the person said, leaving the theoretical possibility that a different player with different facts could prevail in another grievance. Irving's also ruled the parties have a duty of good faith in their conduct under the labor contract. There's also, there's another one there's another article where he goes even into more detail in a 42 page decision obtained by the associated press Irving's accepted Epstein's explanation that injuries to Mike Alt and Tommy Lastello prompted the timing of Brian's call up to the Cubs in April, 2015 concluding that there was no proof of a quote nefarious motive unquote. 
Do you know what proof of a nefarious motive for this would be? be <laughs> Say, saying shit on camera? For the Bellevue Rotary Club. <sighs> the, the fact that Bryant amassed the worst fielding percentage of any third baseman in baseball during spring training cannot be ignored, Irving's wrote. So, so they found that there was a factual basis for the reasons that they sent him down and the reasons that they called him up. How are you going to create that same fact pattern when you just fucking admitted that it's all fake? And this is like the 20th worst thing in there. Yeah. <sighs> I told Jess it was going to be a short episode this week and we're 20 minutes in and we haven't even gotten to the Mets stuff. Of which there is a fair bit. So the Mets signed another starting pitcher, Jarrett. They now have David Peterson competing for a rotation spot, as you wanted. Yeah. Good work. <laughs> signed Taiwan Walker for what is functionally two years and $20 million, What for luxury tax purposes is three years and $23 million. Yeah, it's got like a, essentially what amounts to a small insurance policy. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be there fourth starter assuming he gets through spring training healthy yeah that's perfectly fine um he was better on like top line stuff than underlying stuff last year but i, I think I the answer is probably in the middle because yeah, there's so, reason to believe that the underlying stuff's probably going to continue to improve because he's never been healthy and bad basically yes he's never been particularly healthy Yes. He's also only... never been healthy or great either. He's been healthy and okay to good. Yeah. Like the range of outcomes here mostly involves him either being a mid-rotation starter or hurt. Right. Which is fine. fine. Yeah. kind of a weird... It's a little weird to have done this instead of like Jose Quintana or... Like Jaco Derizzi, I think he's pr- like there's more upside here, and he's a little younger, so I get it. And he's also like just kind of a cooler guy to root for, so fine, whatever. But yeah. I mean, he threw again. This is 2017. He's a weird, but... given, given all the pitchers who have gotten one year contracts, who are yeah. probably better than Taiwan Walker, it's a little weird that he got a two year deal. I think that's probably the best. Sure, way to he is there. younger. I mean, he's going to be 28 this year, so. Yeah. Again, I don't know how much that really matters at this point, given the injury track record. He has the extra year off Tommy John surgery, which might help. You know, his last full healthy season was, well, first of all, it was 2017, which is part of the issue here. But he did throw 157 innings with a 3.49 ERA in Arizona. That's good. Yeah. So 135 ERA plus. I mean, his last, you know, for whatever. At a 135, he didn't really pitch in 2018. His last two seasons where he pitched any notable amounts of innings were 135 ERA plus in 2017 and a 161 ERA plus last year. Yes. Uh, he has generally outpitched his peripherals because he does get a lot of ground balls. Yeah. Um, he throws strikes. He's been homer pro, but he's also played in parks where that's going to be more of an issue than City. Uh, but yeah, he's likely to be fine, if not particularly durable. 
and again, like you said, he's a cool guy to root for. He's going to wear a number 99. He gives away tacos. Like, yeah, cool. It's good vibes, as Marcus Stroman would say. Yeah. I Yeah, it, it's fine. The second year is a little weird. That'll probably be fine, too. I mean, yeah, it does get, like, they... This is very, like, Wilpon Mets. This is like a Wilpon Mets contract. This it is, is, but they don't. Like, they wouldn't give it to this kind of pitcher. Is the thing. Yeah, but like, they'd give this deal to like. I don't even know. Sandy gave out a lot of slightly weird, like two and twenty type deal, like two and sixteen type deals when mm-hmm. he was here the first time. Yeah, but they didn't give it to a Walker type picture pitcher. I feel like. Yeah, it was a lot of like bat they didn't really need or proven veteran closer. But th- this is this is th- there's there's some there's some. Will they would have given this deal to like J.A. Happ instead. Yeah, the Kevin Pillar deal is actually like the most well pointed. It is, yeah. Except yeah. they're not actually guaranteeing him a starting role. Right, but this just like the Kevin Pillar deal has extreme Alejandro Diaz vibes. Yeah, I mean, he's a better player than that. Again, I'm I'm not... Right. Well, you know, they shouldn't have signed Kevin Pillar. Kevin Pillar kind of sucks to mm. root for, because he's said and done a bunch of, yeah. you know, shitty to marginally shitty things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find all those on Google. Uh you know, purely from a playing perspective, Kevin Pillar is, like, he's a role five outfielder that crushes lefties, which is, like, exactly what they needed as a fourth outfielder. Yeah. He can play center better than any of their starting outfielders. Although he, he might is. not be a good center fielder anymore. Yeah, I'm a little. He's, pro- he's probably but, fine there. Like, right? I'm a little skeptical of the small sample size defensive sure. stuff. Um, but th- that's like it. Do- it does. Reek, I mean, he's not uh, an elite. He's not an elite defender anymore by any stretch. So Sandy, the first time he was here, and some of this was clearly driven by Jeff Wilpon. Some of it was probably him too. He's he's building depth by the second best way to build depth, which is to sign good depth players. Mm-hmm. The actual best way to build depth is to get good starters and make your current starters who are better than good depth players your depth. This is mm-hmm. how the Dodgers have done it. Right. You know, you reduce Edwin Rios and Chris Taylor. Chris Taylor into smaller smaller roles than locked in everyday starters and Chris Taylor's like a better player than Jonathan VR or Kevin Pillar. Mm-hmm. Um and you could have done that with JD Davis, who was also a better player than either of those guys. However, JD Davis is your starting third baseman instead. You could have went out and gotten a good starting third baseman. In fact, like the Dodgers literally did with Justin Turner. I mean, Chris Taylor as a Dodger in five years, which comes out to a little over 350 plate appearances per season. Although that's not entirely fair because that includes 2016. In his four full seasons, he was closer to like a 450, 500 on average player. 
but anyway, he's hit 266, 340, 65. I can play six different positions credibly. Yeah. And he's not a he's not a despite not being a locked in starter for them, uh two thousand seventeen four and a half win player, two thousand eighteen four, two thousand nineteen was his it was his down year and he was uh, worth one point seven in four hundred plate appearances and two point one in two hundred and fourteen plate appearances last year. I think the best way to put this, this was a hallmark of the first Sandy Alderson regime. And mm-hmm. some of it was Jeff Wilpon, and some of it carried over before and after, too. But the Mets sign players for roster spots mm-hmm. instead of signing the best players and letting the roster spots fill out later. So it's not, we need a better center fielder than Brandon Nimmo to push Brandon Nimmo to a corner and to have one extra corner bat for some depth. And also, so these guys aren't horribly stretched. Jose Martinez under Jeff Wilpon would have been their backup first baseman and platoon outfielder. Right. But it is, you know, we don't have room for George Springer. We don't have room for Jackie Bradley, but we do have room for Kevin Pillar because he's a right-handed hitter that can play all three outfield spots. Which also describes George Springer. (laughs) Yes, but George Springer will have had to start every day. We didn't have 600 plate appearances for George Springer, so we didn't go that hard after him. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we don't have a backup spot for J.D. Davis, so J.D. Davis is our starting third baseman. We're not going to get somebody better than J.D. Davis to play third base. And I do think with, like, Taiwan Walker, they were put in that spot with pitching because they literally just had no pitching going into this offseason. Right. But it was also... Yeah, if you look they had at a it, fourth starter archetype here that they were looking right. to fill. They kind they of did. Starter. They kind of did. You know, Stroman signed the qualifying offer. He's your number two. You go on Carrasco. He's your third starter. He's a little better than that, but and you know, Walker is your fourth starter, and that leaves Peterson, Yamamoto, and Lucchese, who are probably a little overqualified for fifth starter, maybe, but generally fall into that archetype. Sure, and you want that optional pitching depth. Yeah. That's something I'm not even really criticizing the way they like they actually got a better version of the third and fourth starter types they usually target, so Yeah. Like there's a good chance Carrasco and Stroman are just twos, and that's fine, and obviously you have Syndergaard coming back at some point as well. Yeah. I which is this is all fine. Walker's fine. it's fine. They need more bullpen help. They should have signed Trevor Rosenthal. They've had like five different good relievers where immediately after the good reliever has signed, they've said, well, we offered him similar money, but the other team offered him a chance to close. You know how you can get past that? You can offer them more more money. money. Yes. Assuming that's true and not just the, we tried, but the, we tried on relievers have gotten like, you know, comically out of hand uh, i know andy martino said they were basically done i'm still expecting them to sign like shane green or somebody yeah. like that is you know <sighs> you know the bullpen's okay to good but it's high variance in a way you probably don't like really want your bullpen to be high variance yeah i mean i'm not like especially given 
you don't know how stretched out these guys are going to be when the season starts. And, you know, guys like Walker and Peterson and even Lucchese, are, are they really going more than five for you? Five, maybe six sometimes? You are going to need to fill those middle innings. And with Lugo's injury, you've moved out. You're going to see a lot of Miguel Castro. You're going to see a lot of, like, Jacob Barnes. You see a lot of maybe Drew Smith. And look, maybe those guys work out, but I don't know. There's not a ton of evidence to suggest that's a surefire plan. Right. And for a team that has been all offseason long, from Liam Hendricks to Trevor Rosenthal and everyone in between, leaking interest in elite relief help, they've signed Aaron Loop and Trevor May. Like, yeah. Trevor May is fine. Aaron Loop's probably fine too. But you know, when when you start talking, you know, well, we would have claimed Brad Hand, <laughs> but then we didn't offer him the up the same amount of money that we would have when we said we would have claimed him, and thus did not get him. We would. You know, we offered Trevor Rosenthal about the same money, but he wanted to close. We offered Brad Hand about the same money, but he wanted to close. We didn't want to go for four years on Liam Hendricks. And this is how you end up with a opening day bullpen projection on roster resource that currently includes Dallin Batanzas, Jerry Samili, Jacob Barnes, and Mike Montgomery. Oh, man, I forgot about Mike Montgomery. Did we talk about... Oh, yeah, we talked about it last week. So you, at the end of the show, you mentioned they signed him as an nri and big game hunter and yes you know. tommy hunter here's here's some other names will be in the mix <laughs> steven tarpley drew smith daniel zamora tommy hunter jerry blevins aradis viscaino tom windle trevor hildenberger riley gilliam jared robinson marcel renteria Joey Lucchese, Robert Gisselman, Jordan Yamamoto, Franklin Colome, Sean Reed Foley, Sam Williams, Thomas Lepucky, Yenzi Diaz, Jared Eikhoff, Corey Oswalt, Harold, Oscar De La Cruz, Tyler McGill. Oscar De La Cruz. These, these guys are good all depth. in camp competing for a bullpen spot, theoretically. Yeah. That's a lot of depth. So, you know, you somebody like Oscar De La Cruz might look really good or something. Sure. But, like... Yeah. You've got like, none of those dudes are Liam Hendricks or Trevor Rosenthal, despite my right. misgivings about Trevor Rosenthal. And, and the hope that you know, like, are you really going to keep Jacob Barnes on this roster because you're afraid to put him through waivers? <laughs> it's Jacob Barnes. You got him off waivers. <laughs> you did indeed get him off waivers. Uh, you've got Sam McWilliams, too. You can throw him in there. Okay. Uh, there's, wh- there's one roster spot, by the way, that they really need to upgrade. They're mm. catching depth right now. Here yes. is every catcher other than James McCann, who is in Major League Camp. Mm-hmm. Tomas Nito? Yep. Patrick Mazeko is somehow still on the 40-man roster. I think he's going to be the move for Kevin Pillar, finally. but We'll see. Bruce Maxwell. Yep. David Rodriguez, yep. Nick Meyer, yep. Francisco Alvarez. That's it. Right. I mean, you can sign a third catcher whenever. That's not a huge deal. Right. But um, I don't recall who actually wrote this over at Mason Avenue. I want to say it was Brian Salvatore. If it wasn't, I'm sorry. 
Like, this is a roster that could really use Tyler Flowers. It could, yeah. Yeah, like, this roster could really use Tyler Flowers. And I know Nito has to be put through waivers. You can actually keep three catchers if you want. That's a thing you can do. Yeah. Or you can put Tomas Nito and his career 190 batting average through waivers, because that's also a thing you can do. Listen, we both like Tomas Nito. Yeah. Tomas Nito has 270 plate appearances and a 45 WRC+. plus. Yeah, I will say it's unfortunate that he didn't get a longer run as a backup last year to see if the swing changes are actually doing something for him. But, you know, that's I, I the way it goes. I think Tomas Nito establishes himself, and I think I would rather them catch, keep three catchers in that situation. Yeah. But Tomas Nino being out of options should not be a... Yeah. But these are the decisions good teams have to make at the back end of their 40-man roster. Yes. The Mets are at the point now, assuming that uh, Pat Maseka is the boo for Kevin Pillar, that they really... You might lose... They've built enough roster depth where you might lose a decent player through waivers. Right. You might lose Jacob Barnes on waivers. Yep. If you consider Jacob Barnes a decent player... I mean, he might be a credible major league middle reliever. That's the, I mean, that's the kind of guy you risk losing. Right. Right. Tomas they... Nito might be a credible backup catcher or even like a 1B. That's the kind right. of player you risk losing. Right. At the very worst, they need some kind of better depth catching option yeah. because you've got James McCann, who's not the most durable catcher in the world, and Tomas Nito, who's also not the most durable catcher in the world, and you have nothing behind them. Right, I mean, if you're not, so if you're not targeting, like, Tyler Flowers, you do. You gotta do better than another Renee Rivera NRI. It becomes tough to bring catchers into camp much later than this, especially yes. when you're, especially when you're going to deal with COVID protocols. But you are looking at guys you might be able to get on a, like, an NRI, like, uh, I know you've seen a lot of J.R. Murphy. Yeah. Like, he's fine as your third catcher. Matt Wieters is available. In Matt this, Wieters, yeah. You know, seems like the Cardinals don't have a lot of interest in bringing him back. You might be able to get him on an NRI at this point. Juan Centeno is still out there. Yeah. So you can get a decent quality third catcher. Caleb Joseph. Like, these are not exciting names. Josh Fleisley. They're not. No. They're not, but, you know, they're... And you can also, because other teams are going to have to put their backup catchers to right. waivers at some point, so you can watch the waiver wire for a catcher, but generally, it's not, like, super fun to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one player that is not in camp, Jared, is Tim Tebow, who retired this week. Tim Tebow retired. Listen... <laughs> We've talked a lot. There's about been a lot of Tim Tebow discourse in general over the. I mean, the Tim Tebow discourse basically spans almost this entire podcast at this point. These things can all be true. Mm-hmm. Tim Tebow. It was a joke that Tim Tebow was signed. Mm-hmm. Given that he had so little professional experience and Frank, so little baseball experience, no professional experience, no college experience, high school baseball player wasn't a hugely talented prospect in high school as a baseball player, obviously was as a football player. Given that, 
And given that he was signed as basically a PR stunt, the fact that he became a credible upper minors, below average upper minors player is a phenomenal athletic achievement by Mm. him. You know, just phenomenal. And he was a perfectly credible double-A outfielder. He was not the worst player on the field in most of the double-A games in which he played. Um, I do think, if not for injuries, he probably would have gotten called up in 2018 or 2019. Um, which, again, would have been a PR stunt. Um, there were times at which he was only one or two injuries get away from getting called up on quote merit unquote but that was really more of a testament to how bad the outfield system depth was at the time for the system sure um you know he was two grades of barrel control away from being a major league bench type up and down type player which i mean that's a lot yes that is both way closer than I ever would have thought when I saw the workout tape of him in 2016. And also not all that close. Yeah. I'd say that about a lot of guys. (laughs) I mean, if you didn't know anything about him and that, and that includes his age to a certain extent, because he certainly was a lot more physically mature than some of these guys. And he was, you know, one of the great collegiate athletes period of all time. Yeah. Uh, you know, we noted this, like, I think we saw, was it Columbia against Canapolis? Oh, no, was somebody, was somebody standing next to somebody? It would have been in Lakewood, but he, like, dwarfed everybody else. Like, I remember when we compared him to Micker Adolfo, and he, like, dwarfed Micker Adolfo on the field. So, I wrote a call-up article for him in 2018 because we were pretty sure he was going to get called up before he broke his handmaid. It, right. He would have gotten called Yes, up. he would have gotten called up. <laughs> he absolutely would have gotten a September call-up that year. So I pre-wrote a call-up article because it was like, this could happen any day now, and then he broke his handmaid. Um, and I posted on Twitter because obviously we're never going to run it now. And Colin pointed out that I had pre-filed it, so it should still exist somewhere, and I found it on my Google Drive. Um at the time, and again, this was a period in which we were a little freer with comps than we are now, I comped him to Jose Pujols, who was mm. an outfield prospect of the Philly system, was also a very physical player that needed two grades of barrel control. Um, and they, Jose Pujols also got to double A, was also okay in double A, then had some injury problems, and Jose Pujols got released last year. And to my knowledge, hasn't um, stuck on anywhere else, and... You know, that's functionally what happened here with Tebow. You know, sure, they would have found a spot for him at AAA if they, you know. Um, but the, this, what the pandemic hitting and the minor league consolidation is not going to allow players, whether they're 22 like Jose Pujols or 32 like Tim Tebow, to get those extra opportunities to pick up two grades of barrel control over and over again, because there's just not going to be roster spots for them. Right. Um, but you know, Jose Pujols, you know, I think made some people's top 20 lists. He might've even made ours at some point. I know, I know a scout that turned Jose Pujols in as a first division starting major league player. Um, and I never thought he would be able to hit. I never thought Tim Tebow would be able to hit either, but 
you know, he was he he basically had everything required to be a up and down bench corner guy, except that he had twenty barrel control instead of forty, and the profile needed forty. Right. And I mean, I said this before, but if you didn't, that's know a it, huge difference. It by is. the way, that's not a small difference. I want to make clear: saying all he needed was two grades of barrel control is massive. Yeah. If you just watched him, not knowing anything about his background in Double A or even believe in Eight Ball, he's basically the same guy. You'd think he was like a twenty-third round pick from North Texas or something, right? Like there wasn't power college slugger. Probably did better with metal bats. Right. Didn't couldn't really pick up upper level spin. Struggled with velocity because everything was a little stiff. But I, I see this guy fifty times a year. The Mets had Stefan Sable, who was a prospect I kind of liked, who had basically the exact same skill set and the exact same problems and also never gained the two grades of barrel control. And he also got released and ended up out of baseball. Like, there's... He may have literally been the player released to make room for Tim Tebow. Yes, I wrote a column about that at the time. Um, And in retrospect, you know, they really weren't that different, were they? Hmm. Um, you know, there's guy, there's guys, Joe Janord is this guy, yeah. basically, right? I mean, if you want to compare it, Sable's one season in double A, he hit 229, 316, 362 with a 33% strikeout rate. Yeah. Like there's, there's these guys, that's a common profile. Yeah. There's guys that are higher draft picks that ended up like that. Like, Quinn Brody is basically this guy now, right? I mean, I think the difference here is, like, Tebow also managed to be an amazingly bad outfielder defensively. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Tebow literally has one of the worst throwing arms I've ever seen. And, again, trust me, I like, I pointed this out on Twitter and a bunch of people decided to explain how bad of a thrower he was as a quarterback, as <laughs> like, if I didn't know that already. Right. I understand he was not a good passing quarterback. And in fact, if he would have been a pat- good passing quarterback, he would still be in the fucking NFL. Because I'm not an idiot. The Broncos probably would have won the Super Bowl that year. <laughs> yes. He, in, in fact, if he was a good passing quarterback, he would still be a starting NFL quarterback. He would have, because he had everything else as a football player, except he couldn't throw the ball. However, he was still a NFL first-round draft pick as a quarterback and was a Heisman Trophy winner. And he's, in fact, one of the greatest college quarterbacks of all time. And he had a 20-throwing arm in the outfield. Yeah. Which well, is that's the thing, right? Is usually... I know there were some people saying this uh, during when Kaepernick was getting blackballed that he should go uh, play baseball. He was a pretty good high school pitcher. And, like, Kaepernick obviously has a cannon even by... Yes. NFL quarterback standards. But yeah, he was like low 90s off the mound. So you expect like this top quarterback, and you see it with other guys too. Uh, you know, these top quarterback prospects can also be pretty good pitchers. Yes. Tim Tebow was not going to be a pretty good pitcher. No. Tim Tebow threw for 9,200 yards and 88 touchdowns in the SEC, which yeah. I am. Told is the best football conference. Mm-hmm. Um, he threw for 2,400 yards and 17 touchdowns in the NFL. And he had a 20 throwing arm in the outfield. And not like a 
high-end 20, no. a low-end 20. He made several of the worst throws I've ever seen from the outfield. And I, you know, that, that's just kind of like a weird, a weird fun fact. Yeah. Like in 15 years, it'll be like a weird fun fact that Tim Tebow is one of the worst throwing outfield, quote, prospects. Mm-hmm. Even though he was an NFL quarterback, theoretically. Yep. It's whatever. He probably didn't take roster spots away from people that deserved them more. That was more of a commentary on Mets outfield depth of the late 2010s. He was better than he had any right to be and still wasn't any good. Sure. That's fine. All of this is fine. I'm sure he's going to go find a... Him and Kelly McEnany are both going to be uh, shopping for house seats when the Republicans do redistricting in Florida this year, right? Uh, on that terrifying note, we'll move on to one of our favorite recurring segments that recurs every spring. It is time for Luis in February, formerly Terry in March, formerly Mickey in March, also February. So... We got some quotes about some things the Mets might be doing in the 2021 season, Jarrett. Sure. They might run with the six-man rotation for a little bit. Do you think this actually happens? I'm sure at some point it will. Yeah, yeah I mean, I I think Jacob deGrom is going to be on a regular starting turn. Right. I, and you can move guys around. I mean, you could do right. something where you what roster the... Lucchese or Yamamoto as your long man, and if you need to give everybody other than deGrom an extra day, you bump him behind an opener or something for two times through and right one of the reasons you create optionable starting pitching depth on the 40-man roster is to be able to do this type of shit yeah Uh, the other one is he doesn't have a set third baseman he's okay with jd davis there mcneil might play there some as well though yeah i think that's you know I know Mets fans really like J.D. Davis. It's nice to get a guy that wasn't heralded elsewhere and has done well for you. J.D. Davis is a career 268, 345, 448 hitter. He didn't actually hit that well in 2020. That's heavily buoyed by his 2019 stats. Um... He essentially the only season in which he's been a regular was in fact 2020 and he was often playing positions that weren't third base. He is if not the worst he's if you're going to identify each team's regular third baseman, he's going to be in the bottom five defensively. Is that a good way to put that? Yeah. He's, he's not a good third baseman. And he really doesn't appear to have the bat to warrant just handing him a job, does he? How sure are you that he's actually a better baseball player than Jonathan Villar? Yeah, I mean... 65%, 70%? That's probably about right. It's not 100 
So the idea of, and again, this is all the argument to have went and gotten a better second or third baseman at some point in the offseason than Jonathan VR. Yeah. But <sighs> given, the, uh, given... Chris Bryant talks never got past first base, Jared. Reported by the guy who suggested that the talks <sighs> with Chris Bryant were farther along than first base. Andy Martino of Metsblog.com, by the way. We've I think got, everyone everyone listening credit. to this knows that, Jared. <laughs> yes, but we've got to give him credit. It's very mm-hmm. important to give people credit for their scoops. Yeah. So this was by Andy Martino of Metsblog.com. Uh, we've done Luis in February. Let's do some Zach in February. Yeah. Zach Scott. This is from Hannah Kaiser. Spoke to Zach Scott this morning, who reiterated the Mets will talk extensions with Francisco Lindor this spring, citing Lindor's desire to not negotiate in season. We do preparation on our end, so we're ready to have those conversations when they are. So, hey, God, I got to get the the other ones even better. As for maybe locking him up for a long time before Lindor plays a game as a Met, Scott said, when you're talking to a player at that level, it's understanding the little things they like to do and just making sure we're prepared for them more than we're preparing them for us. Mark Feinsand and John Heyman, who I would say are two of the more plugged-in people to Sandy Alderson. Is that pretty fair? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a group of reporters, it seems to get, that got a hell of a lot of scoops when Alderson was around the first time and is continuing. Mark Feinsand's been a week ahead of every yeah. Mets thing that's happened. Um, and John Heyman's, you know... The person who is giving John Heyman the most scoops is no longer with the organization, but I think Alderson's still talking to him, too. Mm-hmm. Um, both suggested within the last few days that they thought that this was fairly imminent, that he, yeah. that um, Lindor, and these well, are both like MLB network hits, that Lindor was not just going to sign an extension this spring, but was likely going to be the next player with a major contract extension. Again, you, we talked about this at the time when the trade happened he's always wanted to extend everyone i mean the mets should know what the number is because obviously cleveland knows what the number is because they had conversations with them and while you cannot perhaps talk to the player ahead of time because that would be tampering you can certainly you can, open, which you can do although the mets yeah, did not did. you can certainly ask cleveland for your negotiations hey what, what did he want for a contract out of curiosity also, that was being publicly negotiated through the media. <laughs> yes. Um, and again, the Tatis extension might have added eight figures to it or thereabouts. Maybe it didn't. But yeah, the idea that they want to do this face-to-face, I think, is fairly normal for these kind of extensions. It's just easier to get everyone in a room and hammer it out over a day. So the the... Cleveland offered Francisco Lindor about two hundred million, yeah. two hundred ten, two hundred twenty, and Francisco Lindor wanted about three hundred million to extend. And in fact, said during his initial press availability with the Mets that he really hadn't changed. Yep. So, and there really wouldn't be any reason for him to have changed because any because. Yeah, he's one year closer to free agency, but it might be during a lockout year. And his 2020 wasn't great. It was one of, you know, 60 games, but it was one of his worst seasons. So there's not going to be, like, a big additional premium now that there wouldn't have been a year ago. Right. And on his extension. 
there is and something again, to you want to also sit down because you might want a specific contract structure for CBT reasons, opt out, stuff like that. All of these, like there's brackets within the context of these major contracts. Right. Like, you know, I mean, I'm like the Cleveland obviously never got that far because they started a hundred million dollars apart. Right. You know, Mookie Betts is a better player than Francisco Lindor, right? Yeah. And he got 365. Yeah. You know, Fernando Tatis is about the same quality player signed earlier. They pretty clearly paid a premium to get him locked up and not have opt outs. Mm-hmm. But the value of the free agent years, free agent years, that, and again, the Mookie yeah. Betts free agent years, that that was the entire contract. Yeah. Um, the Mookie, the Tatis free agent years, you know, you're going to value at about 285, 290, 295. And they're also probably saving about $20 million on those ARB years conservatively. You know, the Giancarlo Stanton deal, the free agent years were valued about. 280, 290, but there was an opt-out involved. Yeah. Um, and again, I want to be clear. I could not care less if it's 300 million or 320 million or 340 million or 360 million. Just you know, Nolan, Nolan Arenado was 234. So yeah. there's, but there's, this like all creates like a bracketing window. Right, right. Like the, this is going to cost about this much. And everybody knows walking in that this is going to cost about this much if the player wants to extend, which the player does. There are players who do not want to extend. Mm-hmm. Manny Machado never had any interest in signing an extension. He wanted to go for agency. Bryce Harper never had any interest in signing an extension. He wanted to go for agency. And, but you know that. I recall the Nats of- actually offered him something around $300 million too. Right. Like, you, you know that ahead of time. That's mm-hmm. built into the... And Lindor is not going to sit down with the... Lindor is not going to give a press conference and say, yeah, I'd like to extend here, and then go and sit down if he's not going to be willing to sign an extension for around the amount of money that he's supposed to get. This this is just how this goes. And I know there's thing I don't want to negotiate in season, but I think it's reasonable to put a deadline on this stuff, and I don't think it'll get to that point anyway. This also, this shouldn't be a difficult negotiation. It shouldn't. Everyone knows what the number is. Right, you know. And if it's working out that you want to make it 12 years and 320 to spread the hit more, fine, whatever. Right, or, you know, you know, you can get into opt-outs or vesting provisions. and yeah. no, Like, there's a lot to negotiate here, Right, right. But it's not actually difficult to come to the number, to get the right number. And, again, I... I can't imagine the Mets. The tell to me here has always been that they included Andres Jimenez in this trade, which means mm-hmm. that they thought that they were never going to need Andres Jimenez again. Yeah, that that's what that tells you. Yeah, that they and you can that say, they, oh yeah, you know, Trevor Story and Carlos Correa and Javier Baez are going to be right. available this off season, hypothetically. But that's yeah. I mean, you picked your guy as the thing. Right. You could. And you could have very easily not included Andres Jimenez here. Mm-hmm. I am sure Cleveland still would have done that deal with Ronnie Mauricio <laughs> instead, or yeah. Francisco Alvarez, or Matt Allen, or somebody. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you included Andres Jimenez in this deal means that you do not think you are going to need Andres Jimenez next year. And the only reason you don't think you're going to need Andres Jimenez next year is if you know you're just going to offer Lindor a contract he's going to take. This is not difficult to deduce. 
You say that, Jarrett, but it seems to have been trickier in some circles than others. I mean, everybody needs something to write about, right? It's true. It's the worst time of year for that. Go write about how Noah Syndergaard keeps dunking on Rich on Twitter. <laughs> Apparently, he appears to be, like, following him on a burner now? Because he's, Could like, have a private list tweets. or something? I don't know. Right. He's, like, responding to tweets that Rich, like, he's, like, responding to Rich's tweets outside of being tagged in them. Hmm. Which, eh. hmm. Rich is a celebrity now. This yes. is always going to happen. Is this yeah. my fault? I feel like this is my fault. It's at least partially your fault. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, Rich. Uh, we don't have any trouble finding things to talk about this week, God knows. So we'll take a break now. We come back to the third half of the show. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Now it's time for the third half of the show. Before we do the third half of the show, we do housekeeping. This is for all you kids out there. Episode 267. For all you kids out there, it's a Mets adjacent baseball prospectus podcast. You can find us on the internet at baseballprospectus.com. Podcast is on iTunes and various other non-iOS apps. Just search for For All You Kids Out There and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. We're on Twitter at For All You Kids. Jarrett's on Twitter at J.A. Seidler. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. We have a Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash For All You Kids Out There. And you can email the show at allyoukids at baseballperspectus.com. We will get to the emails in a second. Yeah, I, I would like to the exact Julio Rodriguez quote from mm. the Kevin Mather video. A personality bigger than all of you combined. His English is not tremendous. I'll just leave that hanging there for a second. Yep. Uh, I have some personal news. I bought some flannel shirts. I'm deciding. After almost a year into quarantine and wearing pretty much hoodies every day, I need to feel slightly more professional. So I'm going back to my high school days and buying flannel shirts because they have a collar. Are we going to recreate the Roth picture? (laughs) No, we are not going to recreate the Roth picture. I was very much a flannel shirt guy in the late 90s. Then I went to college. I went to college. I became a turtleneck sweater guy. Then I was a particularly obnoxious t-shirt and blazer guy for a lot of my early 20s. And then for... Really, over a decade at this point, I've been a cardigan guy. But we're gonna bring some patterns back in. Yeah. Uniqlo had a big sale, so I, it's very exciting for me. I could become a t-shirt and blazer guy. You could. I just got a really nasty look for that. <laughs> it was very much of its time. To be fair, we all read Brooklyn Vegan and. Wore Sufjan Stevens t-shirts under gray herringbone blazers. Or at least I did. Yeah. Mm. 
All right, let's answer some emails. Well, an email, to be specific. It's from Phil. Hey, guys. Sorry to have to do this. Give comps for your top five Mets prospects at this point in their development. Thanks, Phil. Phil, we don't do comps. We try to do fewer comps. Yes, there's there's just like no... Because here's what's going to happen. We're going to start talking about Ronnie Mauricio, who's a signed as a seven-figure major IFA shortstop. It's probably not a shortstop. It's still growing into his hit and power duels, but there's some stiffness that might end up making him a power over hit guy. And there's a logical Mets comp to make there, but why are you making that comp? Because they look the same. Yep. Let's instead give player archetypes for Ronnie Mauricio, which, in fact, these are available, connected to the OFP, Mm -hmm. on the Mets' top ten prospect list, and indeed every prospect list. The Ronnie Mauricio one, which I wrote. First division infielder somewhere on the left side. The Matthew Allen one, number three starter. Also wrote that one, I believe. No, you wrote that one. Um, I wrote the Francisco Alvarez one, which was first division catcher. Uh, Keenan wrote the Pete Crow Armstrong, which was starting outfielder. And Ben wrote the Brett Beatty one, which was corner infield slugger. Um, if you want to visualize in your mind's eye comparison players for all of those, you're more than free to. The first three guys were 60s. The last two were 55s. The first three guys all made the one one. Crow Armstrong was kind of close. Beatty was less close. Um, yeah. I would I would personally put Khalil Lee probably 6 in the system. I think you would put him 7th or 8th. Uh, yeah, I'd probably put him behind Ginn, so. But, yeah. Yeah. Mauricio is a projectable infielder. So I will say, th- I will say this. Not there. The present hit's not there yet. Right. I expect, I can, I can put this a different way. I expect he'll be a reasonably good third baseman that hits 260 or 270 with 20 home runs. Yeah. Again, you can draw the same player comp if you want, but I actually think number three starter might be a little light for Matt Allen. Yeah, uh, I mean we we didn't have enough to go on there, really. Right, um, he's going to be a, a a power starting pitcher that racks up strikeouts, but I'm maybe, also maybe I'm doesn't letting... have the third pitch to be truly elite. I know 80% of the people listening to this podcast already know that every other site has Francisco Alvarez 50 spots ahead of where we had them. Sure. I also know that. Yeah. You know that, too. Yeah. We like we're Francisco not, Alvarez. Not, we like <laughs> Francisco Alvarez. We've Okay. We've got relevant looks at Francisco Alvarez. That, not only that. Ben saw him in the Appy League. I, I don't even want to go there, mm-hmm. right? Here's the actual problem with Francisco Alvarez. He is a 19-year-old catcher. Yeah. Go look back at prospect lists and top 100 prospect lists and where the teenage catchers ranked on them and what happened next. I yelled about this on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Right. So, you know, if you look at our 101 and 
This is true, at least for the last couple of years, since Jeffrey we've, and I we've really ranked started... too many catchers, more catchers than we're comfortable with. Yes, we are already ranking more catchers than we're comfortable with, but we also have generally not run teenage catchers in the top 50. It would yeah. have to, to... For us to run a teenage catcher in the top 50 Historically or the top 25... Elite prep yeah. draft pick, and even then I wouldn't feel comfortable because prep catchers are... Right, mm. and... There's almost no situation where even a high seven-figure IFA can do enough as a professional by the time they're 20 to... You know, Alvarez was handled extremely aggressively. We got the same Francisco Alvarez reports that everybody else got. I We probably talked to the exact same person on them. Yeah. We got the same report. What we chose to do with that was a little more conservative because he's a 19-year-old catcher that hasn't seen full-season pitching yet. I, you know, I've and, seen some video from early spring. I'm still not a huge fan of the swing change, to be honest. I'm not either. If at this time next year he is a 20-year-old catcher who has torn up both levels of A-ball, yeah. he will also be in our top 50. Sure. But we got to, you know, we we just were not comfortable running Francisco Alvarez ahead of, I don't know, Corbin Carroll, who kind of is vaguely in a similar development spot. But Corbin yeah. Carroll's not a fucking 19-year-old catcher. Mm-hmm. We heard a lot of the same stuff about Corbin Carroll. Yeah. And, you know, he's we were probably outfielder. too low on Corbin Carroll last year. I don't think we were too low on Francisco Alvarez last year. Yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with where we have Francisco Alvarez ranked. I know that that is many spots below where other people have him ranked. I don't care. All right, we go to the Facebook group. Question from Jake. Q for the P. This is right up our alley. What exactly do you guys mean when you say someone has poster energy? I understand what you mean, but if someone once said, I can't explain it, but I know it when I see it. This this question came in right after I was talking about Nero Tandon on Twitter, so I mm. said that's why it was... Um, yeah, nobody out. else recently that has been showing some extreme poster energy that might be adjacent to conversations on this podcast. <laughs> talking about Rich? Yeah. Um... So I think we both specifically mean it was a type of person you would have found on message boards in the late 90s and early 2000s mm -hmm. that like. Which, to be clear, includes both of us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But just like couldn't let a thread drop, basically. Yes. Yes. You know, Mira Tandon just like didn't know when to stop. Right. Like she would just go, you know. Listen, there's a whole host of neoliberal think tank hacks that would have gotten easily confirmed mm -hmm. to be OMB director because they didn't have a long history of posting too much because they knew when to stop on Meet the Press yeah. or on social media. They also probably believe a lot of the same things that Neera Tandon believes about the people Absolutely. she was posting about. Absolutely. I am sure... I mean, you know, despite both of us having extreme poster energy, we do manage to shut up every once in a while. Right. And, you know, Nero Tandon, you know, said things about, you know... The people voting on her confirmation. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> I, I don't know why Joe Manchin decided to tank her nomination. Mm. 
He said it was in part because of tweets she made about Senator Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, as the Democratic chair of the Senate Budget Committee, basically can't tank her nomination himself because right. of things she said about Bernie Sanders. Um, but he certainly could ask his conservative friend from West Virginia to do so. <sighs> Uh, message board politics are always very complicated. Yeah. And, you know, she, she posted too much. Uh, but yes, near tandem is the definition of poster energy. I will use a example that jumped to mind for me. This is on Amazing Avenue, even before I was writing there, when I was still merely a commenter and had extreme poster energy. Uh, got in a days-long fight in the comments. Of, I don't even remember what. It might have been like a game thread or a Mets morning news about arguing Jeff Francoeur against Angel Pagan. Yeah. And who was the better outfielder. Yeah. Days. Like every time whoever I was arguing with, I remember who it was. Like, I don't think we had the live telling you who posted on the page at that point. So you had to refresh to see it. So sitting there, you, the extreme poster energy is clicking. The poster energy is just clicking the refresh button on the thread. That's what it yeah. is. In it, and like in that's like all both uh, accurately describes what happened, but it's also a larger metaphor for poster energy. It's that you don't just have a desire to post, but mm. you have a need to post. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yes, like you have a need to post. Like you just can't stop yourself from making that one next tweet. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> no, clearly. I have never been a compulsive poster. Mm. <laughs> uh, so I have a question. This is from uh, my friend John, who listens yeah. to the podcast. Uh, cue for the P. Will the change in minor league scheduling affect much of a scout or prospect evaluator's views or role during a now embiggened series? I should so I that was have a talked very about interesting question. I should have talked yes. about this in the first half of the show and put it on the agenda, but I did. But yeah, so they announced the minor league schedules. We kind of knew this. Uh, it's putting it more officially. Triple A <laughs> starts, I think, the first week in April. Uh, Double A and below starts the first week in May and runs a couple weeks later that it normally has. It runs into mid-September. But they're all doing six days on, one day off, and like full six-game yeah. series. So and if the you're... The universal minor league off day is going to be Monday. Some of the Western... PCL is Wednesday because like midweek yeah. flights are cheaper. And it's a right. flying league. Uh, if you're a team area guy, this is fucking great. Yes. Because you get your full six-game look without having to travel to two separate cities unless you're yes. you know unless you're unless you're catching the team at home for a six game set but normally like if you are on New Hampshire and you're catching them the bigger is your schedule you might catch them three games in yes. Binghamton and then three games in Reading yes so it'd be more travel more hotels more time in the car that yes. will eliminate a lot of that uh, which Scouts is nice. or Scouts are always trying to figure out ways to either stay in the same place for a week or stay relatively close to home for a week or two. Right. Um, so this is so if helpful. You're, if you're a scout based in New York City and you need to catch Richmond, you might wait till they're in Somerset for a week. 
Now, a downside of this, and this is going to be a problem for us that we haven't discussed yet, Mm -hmm. is that there's only a small handful of teams coming to each park. Right. Because teams are playing each other over and over again. So I know Keenan noted that uh, Jacksonville, where he's based out of, which is now a AAA team, I think half the games there are either Charlotte or Norfolk. Right. And we haven't even like looked at how to deal with that yet. But and the answer I mean, the, might be that we can't. I mean, the other issue with that is simply because of restrictions on ticket sales, which... You know, might loosen some across the sea. I mean, there's some parks that just aren't going to have fans in, I suspect. Uh, I think that'll be the vast minority. But if you're putting 25% seating in a, you know, 5,000 seat high A park and social distancing behind home plate and still have to kill uh, kill seats for scouts, you're not letting us roam. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean,. Lakewood is only having seven teams in this season, and that's actually a high number. So they have Aberdeen, Brooklyn, Hudson Valley, Wilmington. Those are the ones in the division. Those are the ones in the division. And then Greensboro, Asheville, and uh, Winston-Salem, I think it's coming in for a series. But, like, some of this is just, like, if I... I'm going to see Winston-Salem's the third week of the season. Yeah, you're not going to see them, probably. I Even if I do see that series or a few games mm-hmm. in that series, they then don't come back. Right, yeah. Like, I don't see Greensboro until the last week in the season. Where the good like, prospects usually get promoted out by then. Well, it's high A now, so maybe not. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, this is just, you know... So it's going to be a little more, from our perspective, it's going to be a little weird. Now, I do have access to some, you know, I have access to Wilmington and Brooklyn if I have to, too. You know, you have access to Hudson Valley, actually. Hudson Valley's, like, dead in the middle of both of us, actually. Right, yeah, it's, like, like just long enough to be annoying for either of us. Right, so, like, if we absolutely need to, but I have absolutely no idea what the media scenario is. Oh, yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, and I we have no idea right now. This is probably something I should already be asking around about. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, not like the media yeah, stuff. Yeah. I have no idea what the professional scouting limitations are going to be this year. Yeah. Like Some... that, as far as I know, that has not been promulgated yet. Right. Uh, I mean, teams are doing less in-person pro... I mean, this has been a trend in the industry for a while. The teams are doing less in-person pro scouting. And a whole bunch of scouts just got cut last year during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it just came out today. We didn't talk about this either. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks have not restored any of the pay cuts from last year. Yeah. So, yeah, I I don't know is the answer. Um, I don't know if they're... I have a suspicion that they may keep the style of scheduling after this year. Mm-hmm. Although that has also not been announced. I think they'll do more. I think you'll have a more, you'll see more teams, but I think the six days on thing might stay. This is basically what the Southern League has done for years. Right. Like, this eliminates a lot of travel. Um, It just, it makes it a lot easier. I don't understand is, if you're going to do this, and 
they're clearly not beholden to the previous league structure because they've dumped all the names and we're going to get these all sponsored by whoever for branding slash money reasons. Why wouldn't you just like make smaller pod leagues? Like six or eight team leagues at these levels. I don't know. They did at some of them. Yeah, but I mean, functionally, like Lakewood is playing most of the stuff in division, but it's still not, it's not a small league. It's not a six team league or an eight team league. Yes. I don't exactly know what they're. It feels like, I don't want to say it feels like a half measure because they got everything they wanted, but it doesn't feel fully thought through. I guess. Gee, they yeah, just made some now changes. I know. With, yeah, shocker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have one other Facebook question that is not specifically listed as a cue for the P, but I thought it interesting enough to discuss. It's from Benjamin. Was wondering how Gregory Guerrero ended up such a bust. Generally, I think the Mets' big money international signings have been pretty solid. We read some international rankings from 2015. He was ranked ahead of Soto and Tatis and cost as much as Soto and a lot more than Tatis. Also signed for more than Jimenez. The numbers look bad, and the fact that he hasn't started appearing on long prospect lists at his age probably speaks volumes, too. Or am I being too harsh? I, I mean, know. he can't hit. He can't hit, yeah. He got hurt in there, too. He wasn't really a shortstop. But here's, like, the thing. I don't think you can use the phrase or the term bust here. It's very difficult to... Like, we've talked about... Uh, he's Wander Franco as an example. Wander Franco has been the best player in his age group basically since he was like 12. Mm-hmm. Most players, and this is if you go go and look, I don't endorse looking at these because they shouldn't exist. But if you go and look at like 2024 draft lists and stuff like that, or actually go back and look at 2020 draft lists from 2016, which also are a thing that exists. It's like there'll be some overlap. You know, there are some dudes that when they were freshmen in high school were clearly good prospects and remained good prospects through to their draft year or even through to college, but there's a lot of movement. It's very difficult to project how a 15-year-old baseball player is going to develop relative to other 15-year-old baseball players. You know, Steven Strasburg was not drafted coming out of high school. And he was, by the time, like, literally three years later as a college junior, he was a generational pitching prospect. So I don't know exactly when they agreed to that deal with Gregory Guerrero. Let's say it was when he was 15. He may very well have been a better baseball player at 15 than Juan Soto. It's not remotely predictive. I mean, it's, I should say it's not remotely predictive. It's far from a guarantee that he'll be a better baseball player at 18 than Juan Soto. There's just way too many variables in there. So this is the 2020 MLB draft uh-huh. top 50 prospects from perfect game from 2017. Okay. Now I only have the top 10 because I'm not a perfect game. Yeah, sure. That's fine. Um, Austin Hendrick. Okay. He was, uh, uh, he was one of the best prep bats in that class. Trey Fletcher reclassified to 2019 and was right. a second-round pick. 
Um, Garrett Mitchell is a college player, yep. obviously, and stayed there. Uh, Victor Medeiros, which is the I name. I know the name. I, I remember the yes. name, but yeah. Um, he pitches for Miami right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to college. Yeah, he was like, he was had some buzz for that draft, but didn't really. I think he had more like 2019 buzz than, uh, he had more buzz in 2019 than 2020. Um, Joe Doyle, who went to Notre Dame, and became a reliever and was a fifth round pick last year. Yeah. Uh, Mac Horvath. I know the name. Yes, who is at North Carolina now? Mm-hmm. I believe that's right. Skyler, um, Skyler will correct us on all of this. Tommy Mace, who did not get drafted that last year, although it was because of, he's a pitcher from Florida, did not get drafted bonus slash mm-hmm. medical slash whatever went back to florida is likely to be a top three round pick this year yeah um chris mcmahon who went yep. to miami and was pretty good second round pick with the rockies i think uh dylan cruz who was who was not signable and went to yep. um lsu i believe, I believe right yeah. correct me and um nate wolgamuth who went to Arkansas, I believe, um, as a two-way player, but was kind of the a example of a guy that might have signed in a regular draft in like the third or fourth round. Right. So again, those are those are all like not awful. Yeah. But you know they did they not... wouldn't be that they weren't the top ten guys for twenty twenty. No. Um. Not. You know they just weren't. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. You know, the. Spencer Spencer Torkelson's not on that list. Even a more conventional kind of prep. Robert Hassel's not Zach on that Veen. list. Zach Veen's not yeah. on that list. Uh, McAble's not on that list. So, yeah. Um. Yeah, it's tough, man. It's not... You know, it's tough to go a few years out, even when you're dealing with the high school kids that went to college. You, you know, yeah. Spencer Torkelson was not a top prospect coming out of the 2017 draft for the 2020 draft. Right. He went to Arizona State. I mean, Spencer Torkelson was not drafted out of high school. A lot of these guys, sometimes you know, they'll be like the 36th round bonus backup guy. And then, you know, on the flip side, Jack Leiter. Oh, man, I forgot, I forgot Pipeline had him third this year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you really supposed to say that one? I just happened to be on the page, so I was checking to see if he got drafted. I'm not even saying they're wrong, necessarily. I wouldn't do it, but... Um, you know, Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter have been amongst the top yep. pitchers in their age group, you know, since they were 16. I mean, Rock, yeah, Rocker had first-round buzz yeah. out of high school, which is... He they wasn't signable. He wasn't signable, yeah. You know? I mean, he was signable, but he wasn't signable for right. where teams viewed him at that point. Right, you know. Light, yeah, Leiter was signable. I know what his ask was. <laughs> Nobody gives prep pitchers his ask yeah. in a capped universe. I think they probably should have in that case, but nobody did. It might cost them more this year. <laughs> might. Might not be signable this year either because he's a draft eligible freshman. So, yeah. uh, that is the correspondence for this week. I do briefly want to do a wrestling segment because I watched the 
uh, AEW Women's Eliminator Tournament Japanese Bracket. And while I'm really annoyed, they just like constantly keep doing these Eliminator tournaments instead of just having more organic angles to create their title programs. Uh, this might have been the best like hour and 15 minute TV show, wrestling TV show I've seen in a long time. <laughs> I mean, the real lesson here is I just probably need to sit down and watch more Tokyo Joshi Pro, and just, it's not something I can make time for. But man, like, Benny looked like a star. The Maki Ito match was everything I would have expected and hoped. I mean, they had two, like, four-plus-star TV matches, a really fun Maki Ito match that's exactly what you would expect it to be, and then Aja Kong still just being very Aja Kong. Um, and I do want, like, so part of the problem is it's like, it's like that side of the bracket feels like it's who's going to be set up to lose to Britt Baker, which is a weird way to do things. Like just give Britt Baker a title program that can like meaningfully. I don't know if it's going to be Britt Baker. You don't know if it's going to be Britt Baker? I I feel like if it was going to be Britt Baker, it just would have been Britt Baker. I, I guess know. that's true. Karushita hasn't been on TV for a month, basically. So yeah. she feels cold. Her also last program was with Abaddon, so. Yeah. That might be part of it. Um, yeah, like, the TV isn't really good. Uh, we'll do a full Revolution preview next week, but that looks like it's going to be a really good show. Yeah. Um, I guess we should talk briefly about... And again, we'll get more in depth when we actually preview the match next week. Uh, the barbed wire exploding ring match for the AEW championship between Kenny Omega and John Moxley. Um, yeah, I mean, they've clearly had this idea for a year and a half, right? Right, because Moxley winning, party, Moxley winning the lights build. out match is like the right. obvious build to this. Right, this has been a epically long build to this match. Um. You know, listen, I assume this match is going to be pre-taped. Yeah. Also assume it's going to be in the football field. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, we've all watched, both of us have watched a fair bit of FMW. Yeah. This could be, like, one of the great wrestling matches of modern time. It could also just be an epic clusterfuck. Yeah, I don't... So... The thing about their first match, if we're using that as a template, is they basically attempted to have a high-end main event style match with sort of the accoutrements of American deathmatch wrestling around it. I thought it was a phenomenal match. Yeah, you liked it more than I did. I thought it was excellent. Yeah, I thought it was Uh, one of the best matches of 2019. Like the FMW model. So here's the thing. Everyone keeps comping it to FMW because it's like the FMW match style. It's like their match type. It's Onita's match type. I suspect if I'm Kenny Omega and I am a deep student of 90s and early 2000s Japanese wrestling, the match I'm looking to mirror off of isn't like Onita Funk or Onita Hayabusa or the Megumi the, the Megumi Kudo matches from that era. It's Hanma Yamakawa from Big Japan, which was considered to be like the six three ninety four of deathmatch wrestling when it happened in ninety nine. 
Now that was just like a barbed wire board match. It was more of a generic death uh, death match, but they're very capable of just having a high end like New Japan style main event, and then the ring explodes. Yeah. And I wonder, like, I don't know, like, obviously Omega's going over here, and I assume they're writing Mox out so he can go, you know, be a father for a bit. I don't, I don't know. I mean, Moxley's wrestling on Bloodsport during WrestleMania weekend. Oh, I guess that is true, yeah. I don't. I mean, Omega has to win this match. Again, we can get this more in the preview. I feel like Omega has to win this match for the, the angle they're doing right now. Yeah. So Julio, been... Julio Rodriguez has just okay. tweeted in English mm. um, motivation with uh, like the purple devil emoji mm. and a stonks up emoji. Yeah. So. It's the J.P. Crawford always motivation. I uh, I have a few more things to say about that that I'm going to eat right now because mm. Yeah, you have to, you have toned down your poster energy. I, uh, yeah, we ranked Tulio Rodriguez as the number three prospect in baseball based on um, a lot of live looks at Julio Rodriguez and a lot of firsthand information, secondhand information, um, and we were very comfortable with that ranking. And in yeah. fact, a a uh, reasonably high-ranking person within baseball whom we trust a lot and is a much better evaluator than either one of us suggested they should actually be first and not third. And yep. that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, it seems like a good place to wrap. So we'll see you next week for another edition of For All You Kids Out There. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.